Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. Our hymn that we're studying this morning is Man of Sorrows, What a Name by Philip Bliss. And it's on, uh, it's hymn number 246 in your hymnal. Uh, but there's a note sheet back there if you want to if you want the text in front of you of this hymn that you can write on, underline, circle stuff, make notes, uh, then that's back there for you. Well, as we begin, let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that we would be filled with the Spirit and that you would help us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Lord, help us to sing, and when we sing, to sing with our minds, to think about the words that we're saying and the rich truths that we're communicating as we sing these songs. Lord, as we give our attention to this particular hymn this morning, we pray that you would nourish us by your word, uh, that you would help us as we think about the passages of Scripture that connect to this hymn, uh, that you would strengthen us. We pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, Philip Bliss is the author of this hymn, and let me start by just telling you a little bit about him. He was born on uh, July 9th uh, in 1838 uh, in Hollywood, not the one you're thinking of, Pennsylvania. And he grew up in a godly family. His earliest memories are uh, his dad leading the family in prayer, which he did every day. He grew up going to school, working on a farm, and uh, working in, uh, in lumber camps. So he kind of looks like a lumberjack, I think. He made a profession of faith when he was 12 years old uh, at a revival meeting. And, and revival meetings become a big part of Philip Bliss's life. Um, he became an itinerant music teacher, and he would uh, travel on horseback in the winter to teach folks music. He became a friend of the famous Chicago evangelist Dwight L. Moody. And Moody, after hearing him play and sing, encouraged him to become a singing evangelist uh, full-time. And that's what he did, uh, along with his wife. His wife would travel with him and sing. And uh, Bliss and a man named Ira Sankey, uh, who was a longtime collaborator with D.L. Moody, uh, Bliss and Sankey uh, published a popular series of hymn collections together uh, called Gospel Hymns. Um, Bliss was prolific. He uh, wrote over 300 texts and tunes. That's nowhere near Charles Wesley's, you know, thousands of hymns, but it's more than I've written, so I'm going to count that as prolific. Um, a man named John Julian, in uh, his book, Dictionary of Hymnology, he said that most of Bliss's hymns, he says, their popularity is far beyond their literary merits and is due mainly to the simple melodies to which they're wedded. I don't know that that's a critique of him as much as it is just the fact that uh, in, in his day, Philip Bliss was very popular. And, and part of that was that his, the, the songs that he wrote were very singable, and they really caught on uh, in the revivals of that day, but not many of them endured. Now, there are six of his hymns in our hymnal, uh, which we'll talk about in, in just a minute. Uh, one interesting uh, hymn of his that endured uh, a little bit after his death was a hymn called Pull for Shore, uh, where he uses uh, this imagery of a sailor and uh, this uh, need to persevere in the faith um, while trusting in Christ. And the, this uh, a man named Washington Dodge says that people who were rescued from the lifeboats from the Titanic were singing this song 
before they were rescued. The, the hymn goes, pull for shore, sailor, pull for the shore. Heed not the rolling waves, but bend to the oar. Safe in the lifeboat, sailor, cling to self no more. Leave the poor old stranded wreck and pull for the shore. So that's a flavor of some of his hymns, um, but others, uh, others much uh, stronger hymns have endured of his. Well, um, uh, Philip Bliss died on December 29th, 1876. He was 38 years old. And he, he, died, he and his wife died together tragically in the Ashtabula River Railroad disaster. Uh, they were on the way to one of Moody's revival meetings, and he and his wife were going to sing there and lead worship. Um, but they died in the wreck. In fact, uh, some survivors of the wreck tell the story that uh, they, they saw Philip able to escape, but he went back in uh, for his wife, uh, and they, they both perished in that accident. Well, it's, a, it's a tragedy, but you think of this. Philip and his wife uh, got on board this train uh, to go and sing uh, gospel songs uh, with the people of God. And there, the stop of their train was the, the very gates of heaven, uh, that they uh, exited that train uh, to sing the eternal song with the saints. It's a, it's a wonderful blessing of the Lord that he took them to, to be with him. Well, six songs of his are in our hymnal, and I'll, I'll mention just a few uh, the Light of the World is Jesus, uh, 476. Uh, Dare to be a Daniel, you may be familiar with that one. Um, uh, Wonderful Words of Life, hymn 697. I Will Sing of My Redeemer. Um, this is an interesting uh, one, and uh, you, you may be able to think of this, uh, this hymn and, and remember it well. This hymn was found in Bliss's luggage that was recovered from the train crash. And just the text for the hymn was found. There was no music written for it yet. And so, uh, um, and, uh, and, and a man, James McGranahan, uh, took the text and wrote the music with it. And we uh, sing that from our hymnal. Uh, interestingly, uh, a man named Forrest McCann in his book, Hymns and History, says that this is one of the first songs recorded by Thomas Edison, I Will Sing of My Redeemer. Um, and then, interestingly, uh, Bliss didn't write the text for this, but It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, Philip Bliss wrote the tune for that hymn. Uh, Horatio Spafford, you may know the story. Uh, his wife and his four young daughters were on a voyage over to Europe uh, across the Atlantic, and there was an, uh, a collision of ships at sea, and the, the wife survived, but uh, the four young daughters drowned. And, uh, Horatio Spafford wrote the beautiful "It Is Well with My Soul" uh, in response to this, and uh, and and Horatio uh, Spafford asked Philip Bliss personally to write the tune for uh, this text, and uh, the tune name, uh, which is written up there, is named after the ship that they were on uh, when they died. Uh, well, Philip Bliss wrote the hymn that we're looking at this morning, the text and the tune for it, "Man of Sorrows." What a name. And uh, let's give our attention now to the, the words of this, uh, this hymn. They're absolutely beautiful. Uh, it, it's a fantastic um, hymn. And uh, the first verse of it is, Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Um, Philip Bliss in several places in this hymn is expressing amazement for us. 
And uh, amazement's kind of a hard thing to convey in writing sometimes. If you're reading fiction, the author can only write suddenly or out of nowhere so many times. And Philip Bliss, the way that he does this is he starts by saying, man of sorrows, by beginning this title for Jesus with the exclamation point, and then what a name. Uh, he's, he's meaning to call forth amazement from us. Uh, we're, we're meant to think about this title for Jesus and say, what a name. And there's that contrast in the first uh, two lines there, man of sorrows, what a name, and then this other title for Jesus, for the Son of God who came. What an amazing thing that the Son of God, the very second person of the Trinity, the one who knows joy better than anyone, it is the joy of the Lord when sinners repent. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, and of course one of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. And yet Jesus took on flesh. He, was, he entered into this life. He was incarnate, and in His humiliation, He was the man of sorrows. You could say in a lot of ways that this hymn is a meditation on the servant song, the, the suffering servant song in Isaiah 53. In one line in particular, verse 3, he was a man despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You think of the many ways in which Christ was humiliated throughout his life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer is Christ's humiliation consists in him being born and that in a low condition, that, that, the, that the very Son of God, the Eternal One, took on flesh, was born in a low condition of all things, and made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. The, that He's a man of sorrows, that we marvel at this name. What a name that He has for the Son of God. And then what was the Son of God doing? Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a sinner. The Son of God had a mission. He became the man of sorrows to reclaim ruined sinners. Uh, it's, uh, it's one of, there, there are four titles in this first verse. Uh, man of sorrows and Son of God for Jesus. And then a title for us, ruined sinners. It's a, it's a good name for us. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 3, You were dead in the trespasses and sins and by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Uh, we are without hope unless the Lord saves us. And, uh, and, and this is what the Lord Jesus had to do in order to save us, take on flesh and become the man of sorrows. And then we have this final title for Jesus, uh, that He is our Savior. And it's the name that we've been thinking about, perhaps uh, especially because it's Christmas, uh, the, the angel says in Matthew 1.21, She, uh, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, and, and that refrain goes throughout the entire hymn. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And there are five verses to this hymn, and uh, it, it's a relatively short hymn. It only takes up half a page in the hymnal. Uh, but it's, it's punchy, it's filled with power. 
And, and as we look at the second verse, we see bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So now Philip Bliss is having us look uh, more narrowly at Jesus' crucifixion and the way in which he especially endured humiliation and suffering on the cross. First, they're bearing shame and scoffing rude. Uh, in, in Matthew 27, we see this description of Jesus' mockery that he faced, especially uh, on the cross. And there, there, there's much more mockery if you, if you read all of Matthew 27 and the other places in the gospel where it talks about Jesus' crucifixion. The, the mockery is, is awful, especially if you spend time thinking about the glory of God, how precious our Savior is, and how cruelly people mocked Him. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 38 says, Then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Can you imagine mocking the, the very one who has the power to save your soul? Also, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, these the, the leaders of the people of God, mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Now, of course, Jesus could have saved himself, but then a redemption for us wouldn't have been accomplished. Uh, they're mocking the very one who, if they would repent, would save their souls. He is the king of Israel. They continue mocking him. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. So they're testing God here. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the next line in Matthew 27 is that the two robbers on either side of him were both mocking him. Interestingly, uh, other gospel accounts says that uh, one, of the, one of the thieves believed in Jesus and asked him to save him. And so it must mean that one of these thieves initially began mocking the Lord Jesus, but then was convicted of his sin. Uh, in in the, the, the second part of verse 2, bearing shame and scoffing rude, this terrible picture. But what was Jesus doing on the cross? Why did he do this for us? Well, it says, in my place condemned he stood. So we have this picture of substitution. That's what Jesus is doing for us. He is accomplishing a substitutionary atonement for us on the cross. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so Jesus is not crucified for any sins of his own. He has none. He's crucified for hours. And on the cross, as terrible as the physical suffering and torment is, it would be almost too much to bear for any human. Jesus is also taking on the wrath of God against sinners. Jesus has taken on our sin so that by believing in Him, we can take on His righteousness. And Peter quotes, by His wounds you have been healed. And he's quoting again from Isaiah 53. Where verse 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that did what? Brought us peace. 
It's with His wounds that we are healed. Jesus on the cross is taking our place. In, our, in my place, condemned He stood. And, uh, and, and Jesus was accomplishing redemption for us in this way. And that's what Philip Bliss talks about next in this verse. In, in being crucified, He sealed my pardon with His blood. That, I love that language that He sealed my pardon. Uh, he has secured it for us. Because Jesus did this for you, it cannot be lost if you trust in Him. You're not relying on your works to save you. You're relying on the perfect work of the Son of God, the man of sorrows who came to die in your place. Uh, Leviticus, and there's this emphasis that He sealed my pardon with His blood. His blood was necessary for our salvation. Leviticus shows us it is the blood that makes atonement. So throughout the Old Testament, because of the sacrificial system that God gave His people, the people were used to seeing animals slain. And they're used to thinking, He died for me. And all that is preparing them for the day that they would see the Son of God stretched out on the cross, bleeding and dying for His people. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. It's the most important part. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of goats and bulls cannot take away our sins ultimately because we're not a goat or a bull or any of those things. We need a man, a true man, to suffer in our place or he's not really taking our place. But we need that one to be the very Son of God so that he can take on the wrath of God for sinners and so that He can rise again. And it makes us say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, the third verse, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. This is one of my favorite verses in, in this hymn. But he, uh, Philip Bliss starts with this contrast between Jesus and us. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, but then look at him, spotless lamb of God was he. Uh, guilty, vile, and helpless. So first, he's, that's a, again, we don't get a lot of fun descriptions of ourselves in this hymn, but th this is what Philip thinks about you, that you're guilty, vile, and helpless. And he thinks that about you because he thinks that about himself. That, that you're guilty, that you, this is your status under the law because you're a sinner. You owe a debt to God, a debt that you could not possibly pay. You are guilty and, and charged by Him. But your sin is also vile. It's disgusting. It's a very visceral description of our sin, isn't it? It's, I think it's meant to make us think about leprosy in the Old Testament. You remember how under the Old Covenant, a leper was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean and had to be outside the camp until they were healed of their disease. And it was a picture in many ways of sin. Uh, sin is pervasive. It's gross. It gets all over you. Uh, and it's a spot that can't be washed out except by the grace of God. Our sin makes us guilty. Our sin is vile. And we are helpless. As if the news couldn't get any worse. We are unable to help ourselves. We're unable to work ourselves out of it. We're unable to find a cure for ourselves. This is our state. Jeremiah 17, 9. 
The heart is deceitful above all things, and you are desperately sick. Who can understand your heart? Who can heal it? Who can save it? Well, the Lord Jesus can. The spotless Lamb of God. The one who had no stains of unrighteousness. The one who was innocent. Uh, who was not vile, but was in fact beautiful. And uh, was not helpless, but was the one who could do us real good. Who could touch a leper. Who could actually come in contact with a leper and make that leper clean who could open blind eyes and deaf ears. It is this one who can save our sins. He's the spotless Lamb of God. You remember under the Old Covenant that you, you weren't to bring your, your lamb that was really struggling and was probably about to die anyway. That's not the one that you were to bring to sacrifice. It was your best lamb. The, the, one, the, the one who... Uh, would make uh, who would be a, a plea, who would really be a sacrifice for you to give. That was the offering that the Lord wanted. Well, the Lord Jesus was the best. Uh, he was the best of all of us. He was the best of heaven. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And this is what John the Baptist says about him. Such a wonderful statement. When he sees the Lord Jesus in John 1, 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. There He is. That's Him. That, that one, the God-man, is the very Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the only way it can be done. And in, ver in the second part of the second half of verse 3, uh, Philip Bliss again helps us express amazement by saying full atonement. And again, he puts an exclamation mark in there to make you mentally pause and say full atonement. And then he gives us a question, can it be? Can it really be true? Uh, it's expressing here, it's too wonderful to be true. Uh, it's, it's too great to even get our heads around that we can have full atonement. Uh, that the Son of God can pay for our sins so that the, the debt that we owe can be fully paid, but not by us, by the Lord Jesus Christ. Full atonement. This is what Jesus says about himself. Listen to these three places from the Gospels. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. In John 10 and 11, He's talking about Himself as the Good Shepherd. He says the Good Shepherd specifically lays down His life for His sheep. He's not a hireling that runs away at the first sign of trouble. In fact, He lays down His life for His beloved sheep. And then in Luke twenty-two nineteen, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, this is my body which is given for you, crucified for us, to make for us full atonement. Can it be? It's such a wonderful thing, and it makes us say hallelujah, praise the Lord. What a Savior we have. Well, two more verses uh, to, to look at. Uh, verse 4, lifted up, was he to die? It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. There, there at the beginning, lifted up was he to die. This is something that Jesus says about himself in that conversation he has at night with the Pharisee Nicodemus. You remember that Nicodemus probably didn't want other people to know that he was coming to talk to Jesus. So he comes and talks to him at night. 
And Jesus tells him all these things that are very strange to him. He tells him that he needs to be born again. And Nicodemus is trying to figure out logistically how that works. But then Jesus says this to Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. That's a really interesting reference that Jesus is making there. Uh, and, And the lifting up that Jesus is talking about is going to be His crucifixion, Jesus being raised up on the cross. Uh, before men to die. In Numbers 21, I encourage you to go and read this uh, later, but uh, there were serpents that God sent among the people of Israel while they were, uh, among the Hebrews while they were journeying uh, in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Uh, They were grumbling uh, and they were despising the way in which God had blessed them and longing to go back to Egypt. And the Lord sent snakes among them and that they were uh, biting the people, delivering uh, this venom. Uh, it calls them fiery serpents, probably because of the burning sensation that this, uh, that this venom caused in their bodies. But the Lord made a provision for the people who were bitten by the snake. There was a bronze serpent uh, on, on a staff that was raised up. And if anyone looked at the serpent, then they would be healed. That's an amazing thing for a lot, of, a lot of reasons. One, it was the Lord who sent this judgment on them, but then who provided this deliverance for them? Well, it's the Lord who did it. And then what did the people have to do to, to, to be healed from the venom? Well, they had to look at the snake. They had to look and they had to believe that this was the deliverance that the Lord had provided for them. Well, isn't, the, isn't it in many ways the same for the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, we are sick in our sin. Our sin is a venom that will kill us. And what do we have to do? We have to trust what the Lord has provided, the means of deliverance that the Lord has given us, and that's Jesus Christ. And we look to Him, the one who was crucified on the cross for our sins. He was lifted up that we who look to Him might have salvation. Praise the Lord, the the Lord Jesus is no longer there on the cross. He was taken off the cross. Joseph of Arimathea placed in the grave, and then he rose again on the third day, victorious, and now he's in heaven. And Philip Bliss is getting there in this verse, but before we get to uh, the the second half where there's there's a big change in in the hymn, and we're out of Jesus' humiliation and we're on to his glorification. Uh, but but just to talk about this uh, one line, lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. And, and John 19, 30, uh, we'll look at this quickly. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And we remember that on the on the cross, Jesus was accomplishing redemption for us. And his cry was that work is done, it is finished. Uh, Jesus didn't have to uh, do something else after the cross. He didn't, as as some have said before, have to go down in hell, into hell and perform some kind of work there. No, on the cross, your redemption was complete and finished. Well, then there's this change in the hymn. And in the second half of verse 4 and then verse 5, we're thinking about the exalted Lord Jesus. And he goes from being lifted up on the cross 
crying out, it is finished. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And we think here of Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, the Lord Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. After His crucifixion and His, resurrec- and, and his resurrection, He ascends to heaven at the right hand of the Father. And, and we see, and then we look to our hope in verse 5. It says, When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And to continue what I was just reading a moment ago in Philippians 2, in verses 10 and 11, it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see what Philip Bliss has done in the hymn. And at the end of verse 4, he was having us think about uh, Jesus' resurrection and then His ascension. But then now he has us looking forward. He has us looking forward to the day that Jesus will finally return. Uh, that, that day that every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is indeed the Lord. And, and where everyone will confess that He is our glorious King, the Lord of glory. Uh, Revelation 19, 16. Uh, John, uh, in, in his revelation, sees this uh, wonderful picture of Jesus returning. Uh, and it says, On His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And what is Jesus doing when He returns? Uh, well, all His ransomed home. He's he's bringing all his ransomed home, all his ransomed home to bring. Uh, It's it's a reminder that if if we die in the Lord before Jesus returns, uh, then we go into his presence. Then on that day when Jesus returns, he will make all things new. Uh, In Psalm 26, the very end of of the psalm, uh, we remember it says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's the promise for all those who trust the Lord and who die in Christ Jesus. In Revelation 21, 3, looking forward to that day when Christ returns, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's the day we're looking forward to. The, the Lord descending and uh, making the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the, this new Jerusalem where the people of God will worship Him and be in perfect fellowship with, with one another forever and ever. And then on that day, Philip Bliss says, uh, this, then anew this song will sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. It, it puts a, a new light on the refrain that we sing over and over again in this hymn that we sing now, hallelujah, what a Savior, in the difficulty of this life. But then one day we will sing a new song, uh, but, but, but it'll be the song that we've always been singing, hallelujah, what a Savior, but we'll know more and more of who He is. And I think it's a beautiful picture of Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. It says they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, Speaking of Jesus, the the Lamb who was slain, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, Jesus, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the song that the saints are singing that John sees in his vision. And this is the song that we will sing forever and ever. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, what good news uh, Philip Bliss has taught us to sing. Um, Let's sing this together now. Uh, Dr. Reams is going to come and uh, play the melody for us. And I'd invite you to turn in your hymnals to hymn 246. Uh, We'll sing this together. I'll pray afterwards. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank You that You sent the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, to stand in our place, to die for us, to rise that we might rise with Him, and that we might have full forgiveness of sin and new life in Him. Lord, help us uh, to say as we've sung already, hallelujah, what a Savior. Full atonement can it be that Christ, You have died for us. Lord, help us as we uh, enter into worship this morning. Help us to worship You. Help us to sing with our minds. Help us to sing with full hearts. Help us to sing uh, with the Holy Spirit helping us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.